0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense about the latest media reports about research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry without the hype and distortion of other media sources and also endeavoring to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it as well as to better inform the general public about mental health issues and welcome again appreciate your tuning into this podcast which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday August 10th 2016 well by far to me the biggest mental health related news that happened in the past week certainly only a big headline in strict scientific circles, but definitely a major development in uh, the striving to find better ways to diagnose and treat depression. Um, a new study identified 15 gene regions associated with depression. It is called a genomic study looking at products of genes and associations of specific genes with certain illness include in this case depression and it used a novel method of enrolling participants and it identified for the first time 15 regions of the human genome that appear to be associated with depression in individuals of european ancestry in any case results of the study which utilized data gathered by the consumer genomics company, 23andMe, were published online in Nature Genetics uh, this past week or week and a half. You may have heard of 23andMe. They advertise heavily. Uh, they want you to send them a sample of your DNA just by scraping a cotton swab side of your mouth typically is the easiest way to do it. And they'll send you back a report telling you a lot of things about you. Um, what is your genetic ancestry um, in, in terms of uh, your heritage? Are you Eastern Europe? Are you Africa? Where uh, do you genes indicate that your uh, ancestry came from? Also, um, maybe more information than you want to know about what illnesses that you may be subject to in the future. But in any case, getting back to the issue of depression in this study, identifying genes that affect risk for any disease is a first step towards understanding the disease biology itself, which then provides targets to aim for in developing new treatments. More generally, finding genes associated with depression should help make clear that this is a brain disease, which hopefully will decrease the stigma still associated with these kinds of illnesses. I think the article makes an excellent point there. Uh, With most things that someone goes to see a doctor about, there are blood tests or x-rays that can be used to help diagnose an illness and track progress. With depression, uh, we still diagnose it by asking a patient questions and, yes, making certain observations about their behavior, but mostly just depending on asking someone how they feel and their response to specific questions. Uh, there still is a lot of skepticism in the minds of many people who don't understand that depression is a real illness, it is a brain disorder, uh, and hopefully getting more genetic clues would improve the situation. I would like to mention that the idea of there being biological tests to diagnose depression, uh, while it's not yet gotten into the mainstream of clinical medicine is not new. Um, It has been the case for many, many years that if you do certain highly sophisticated brain scans, you can look at the depressed brain and tell that it doesn't look like the brain of someone who's not depressed. However, these tests such as PET scans, that stands for positron emission tomography, Uh, or functional MRI scans which don't just look at a static MRI picture of the brain, they look at the brain while you're doing a task or having certain thoughts. These can be done and have been done but they're considered experimental and used for purposes of research only. Um, It may be years, if ever, before Tests like that can be ordered and done at your neighborhood imaging center to help diagnose depression or any other mental illness. Um, interestingly, PET scans have gotten into mainstream medicine, but for other purposes Uh insurance company will pay for a PET scan of your brain if it's to diagnose Alzheimer's disease uh, but not depression. Now. While it is well known that depression can run in families, most previous genetic studies have been unable to identify variants influencing the risk for depression. One study did find two regions of the genome that may contribute to disease risk in Chinese women, but those variants are extremely rare in other ethnic groups. The researchers for this study noted that the many different forms in which depression appears and affects patients imply that, as with other psychiatric disorders, it is probably influenced by many genes, with effects that could be too subtle to be found in previous, relatively small studies. Unlike traditional methods of recruiting study participants, which involve seeking and enrolling prospective participants, and then conducting comprehensive interviews before actually getting a genotype on each individual this study utilized data collected from customers of 23andMe uh, as we talked about which is a direct to consumer genetic testing company who consented to participate in research um... Probably are disclaimers in the article, but I can tell you that 23andMe uh, did not contribute anything, nor did they benefit in any way financially to the study. They just said, okay, here you can use the data we have. Uh, participation included responding to surveys and completing information about medical history, as well as physical and demographic information. 23andMe's researcher platform uses aggregated data that is non-identifying. So we also don't need to worry that the people who sent their genetic data to 23andMe um, and whose genetic data was included in this study um, or giving away anything related to their identity or their own genetic history. And the investigators first analyzed common genetic variation using data from more than 300,000 individuals of European ancestry from the 23andMe database, more than 75,000 of whom reported having been diagnosed with or treated for depression, and more than 230,000 with no reported history of depression. That analysis identified two genomic regions. One region of the genome containing a poorly understood gene known to be expressed in the brain, and another containing a gene previously associated with epilepsy and intellectual disability. As significantly associated with depression risk, the research team combined that information with data from a group of smaller genome-wide association studies, which is where they look at just anything across the genome that's associated with certain illness. And that um, those studies enrolled about 9,200 individuals with a history of depression. 9,500 controls, and then more closely analyzed sites of possible risk genes in samples from another group of 23andMe clients, almost 45,800 with depression, and 106,000 controls without depression. So the results identified 15 regions of the genome including 17 specific sites as significantly associated with a diagnosis of depression. Several of these sites were located in or near genes known to be involved in brain development, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, So apparently, they have found that something to do with brain development um and that in terms of genetic variation will make someone vulnerable to developing depression. Um, the neurotransmitter based models of diagnosing and treating depression are more than forty years old. You know, the drugs we have manipulate serotonin and for the most part and also manipulate norepinephrine and dopamine. We really need new treatment targets. Uh, we're only helping a few people a little bit. So hopefully these genes will point toward novel treatment strategies. Another key takeaway from the study is the traditional way of doing genetic studies isn't the only way it works. If you have these large data sets or biobanks, it's far more efficient and helpful and could be used for other psychiatric disorders such as anxiety disorders where traditional approaches also haven't been successful. Well, you can be sure I will keep you up to date as more developments from this type of data come through and maybe lead to new treatments. We're going to take a commercial break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
0: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: This is Daryl Pulis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand
0: why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, a study has found that when you image the brains of overweight people They appear to be 10 years older than lean counterparts at middle age. Okay, now I want to emphasize in the strongest possible terms, before I even start to discuss this article, please let no one think this is about body shaming or um, fat police or food police or issues of appearance and overvaluing thinness in society, this is a health issue. And this being a podcast about mental health issues and taking care of the brain and good brain health, that is the reason I'm reporting it, and only that. Um, it is just another way of emphasizing how to take better care of your brain by being aware of uh, whatever may affect its health. And in this case, what's affecting the health of the brain apparently is obesity. So with that introduction, let's review the article and the findings of this research. From middle age, the brains of obese individuals display differences in white matter similar to those in lean individuals 10 years their senior, According to new research led by the University of Cambridge, white matter in the brain is the tissue that connects areas of the brain and allows for information to be communicated between different regions. Our brains naturally shrink with age, but scientists are increasingly recognizing that obesity, which is already linked to other health conditions such as diabetes, cancer, and heart disease may also affect the onset and progression of brain aging. However, direct studies to support this link are lacking. In a cross-sectional study, in other words, a study that looks at data from individuals at one point in time, researchers looked at the impact of obesity on brain structure across the lifespan to investigate whether obesity was associated with brain changes characteristic of aging. The team studied data from 473 individuals between the ages of 20 and 87, recruited by the Cambridge Center for Aging in Neuroscience. The results were published in the journal Neurobiology of Aging researchers divided the data into two categories based on weight lean and overweight they found striking differences in the volume of white matter in the brains of overweight individuals compared with those of their leaner counterparts overweight individuals had a widespread reduction in white matter compared to lean people The team then calculated how white matter volume related to age across the two groups. They discovered that an overweight person, say 50 years old, had a comparable white matter volume to a lean person aged 60 years, implying a difference in brain age of 10 years. Strikingly, however, the researchers only observed these differences from middle age onwards, suggesting that our brains may be particularly vulnerable during this period of aging. As our brains age, they naturally shrink in size, but it isn't clear why people who are overweight have a greater reduction in the amount of white matter. Scientists can only speculate on whether obesity might in some way cause these changes or whether obesity is a consequence of brain changes. With an aging population and also increasing levels of obesity, it's essential to establish how these two factors might interact since the consequences for health are potentially serious. The fact that these differences were only seen from middle age onwards raises the possibility that we may be particularly vulnerable at this age. It will also be important to find out whether these changes could be reversible with weight loss, which may well be the case, but again, may not. Despite the clear differences in the volume of white matter between lean and overweight individuals, the researchers found no connection between being overweight or obese and an individual's cognitive abilities as measured using a standard test similar to an IQ test. That is very reassuring. However, clearly I think the take-home message from the study is that the effects on the health of the brain are yet another consequence of obesity, along with what we already knew that obesity does increase the risk for heart attack and stroke, diabetes, sleep apnea, uh, deterioration of joints, and the list just goes on and on. Uh, having said that, obesity is a multifactorial problem. It is not simply uh, an issue of an individual eating too much. Um, It has to do with genetics. It has to do with stress that people are suffering from. It has to do with economics. Uh, Does someone live in uh, a a state of poverty or do they live in a food desert where there aren't uh, stores that sell healthier food at affordable prices? Um, There are a lot of policy and public health issues that relate to problems of obesity. Uh, but regardless, uh, this, this study and uh, what it tells us about middle age and obesity and health in the brain is a wake-up call uh, that as far as policy and public health issues that can impact this problem, more needs to be done. and. And that's because on the individual level, it is very, very difficult to lose weight. People, I think, vastly underestimate how difficult it is to lose weight. You have to exercise an hour a day, uh, if not every day, six days a week. And you have to be very, very careful about your caloric intake and at every meal, everything you put on all your food. And you know it doesn't allow for cheating, or it's not going to happen, not going to be successful. Uh, so it isn't just a simple matter to say, you "Well, know, someone's obese. Oh, well, they need to just try harder to lose weight." Not an easy thing to do. Okay. Well, again, just letting you know, this is about brain health, and this is just one other factor that may affect it especially in middle age. Next up on Psychiatry Today I have a military and veterans mental health update for you and in this case it's about women in the military and how combat exposure may jeopardize their mental health. A recent study found that combat exposure among army enlisted women was associated with an increased likelihood of developing behavioral health problems post-deployment, including post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, depression, and at-risk drinking. In a study that was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, 42,397 Army enlisted women who returned from Afghanistan or Iraq, were assigned combat exposure scores of 0, 1, 2, or 3+, plus, based on their self-reported experiences. Importantly, any report of combat exposure among Army women was associated with an increased likelihood of each post-deployment behavioral health problem. PTSD, depression, and at-risk drinking, suggesting that the impact of even one exposure event should not be overlooked. And I think that's an important point because the study was done based on self-reports, which may not be completely accurate or reliable. So they're saying it didn't matter if it was only, if there was just any combat exposure at all. That was enough to see an increased risk of these mental health problems. The magnitude of the association between combat exposure and PTSD was most striking. Active duty and National Guard Reserve women with combat exposure scores of 3 plus had at least 20 times higher likelihood of screening positive for PTSD compared with women with no combat exposure. The findings suggest that injuries, assaults and combat exposures experienced by women during deployment may have an additive negative effect on their post- deployment behavioral health. The study appeared in the Journal of Traumatic Stress. Ongoing force-wide screening for behavioral health problems needs to be coupled with development and evaluation of programs to improve the psychological well-being of the armed forces. Well, this is just more evidence that efforts to improve pre-deployment screening of Uh, Those in our military for mental health problems, as well as post-deployment screening for problems that develop after exposure to combat or just service in general, regardless of combat, are going to be ever more important in terms of preserving the mental health of our military and our veterans and the situation is changing. More attention is being paid to this issue, uh, which is great and which is why I follow it so closely. But uh, based on the recent findings that we have um, 20 military or veteran suicides a day, more needs to be done. Well, it's time for another commercial break. We'll be back with that after this well, back with more mental health news, rather, I should say, after the break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things,
0: and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem You will be a partner in your care, and together, we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. 45
3: years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Here's an article that's a little bit different, instead of uh, the science of the brain and genes, something about how people are perceived, and specifically, why it's hard to shake a bad impression. There is a moral tipping point. And if you think about it, it is uh, particularly interesting that this study was published in uh, the political season that we're in, a uh, pending presidential election where both candidates have horrific uh, approval ratings, oddly enough. But according to this study, it's easier to get a reputation uh, than to get rid of it. Specifically in this study... They were looking at getting a bad reputation as being a gossip. But uh, in general, it seems to be the finding of the study that people require more evidence to perceive improvement in someone's moral character than to perceive a decline. In other words, it's easier to become a sinner than a saint. Well, uh, this is a University of Chicago Booth School of Business study published in the journal Social Cognition. In a study called The Tipping Point of Moral Change, When Do Good and Bad Acts Make Good and Bad Actors? Um, and uh, the authors found that people require more evidence to perceive improvement in someone's moral character than to perceive a decline. The researchers set out to determine where people draw the moral tipping point in evaluating others. How many acts must a person commit or cease before that person appears to have substantively transformed in moral character? In a series of experiments the researchers created characters and stories to reflect actions in everyday life. The study participants read about the actions of these fictional characters who behaved in either a moral or immoral way. The researchers found across all the experiments that participants were quicker to diagnose moral decline but slower to diagnose moral improvement, despite observing the same amount of evidence in each case. In other words, it is easier to become a sinner than a saint. In one experiment, a fictional person named Barbara was described as working in an office. At times she behaved nicely, holding the door for her colleagues or giving them a compliment. Other times Barbara cut in line or spread gossip. Participants were then told to imagine either a positive change or a negative change in Barbara's behavior. The researchers tracked the number of weeks Barbara needed to persist in her positive or negative behavior for participants to believe that she had morally transformed. When Barbara acted badly, It took only a few such instances for the participants to judge her as having changed for the worse. Barbara didn't get any extra credit when she stopped behaving meanly, and when she tried to improve, it took many good actions for her to be seen as changed for the better. The implications of the study obviously go far beyond impressions of office colleagues, illuminating why people, once they have formed a negative impression of someone, can refuse to give them a second chance. The findings also raise questions for judges and public policy makers in prescribing sentencing and sentence commutation guidelines for crimes. And as uh, the article didn't mention, but as I also mentioned, uh, if people get... Initially, negative impressions of a candidate for political office, including President of the United States. What would it take for those impressions to change? Apparently, quite a bit, based on that. Well, there you have it. So, some insights into behavior and how we judge others. Next up on psychiatry today... Baby boomer couples who have found that their sex life has declined recently should pay especially close attention to this next item. Uh, this researcher was was uh comes to us in part from the University of Rochester, my alma mater for college. Um happy couples sailing Uh, in a picture about the article, but it may not be smooth sailing for couples who find that their sexual desire has dwindled over time. It's not unusual for partners who were very active and very interested in each other sexually to gradually lose interest, but new research indicates that there are ways that couples can sustain or reignite Their passion. Research shows that partners who are responsive to each other outside the bedroom are able to maintain their sexual desire. Now, they also found that women's desire is more strongly affected by their partner's responsiveness than men's desire, although men report a boost as well. So, what about responsiveness, which is a type of intimacy, It is so important in a relationship because it signals that one is really concerned with the the welfare of the other, but in a way that is truly open and informed about what the other cares about and wants. Responsive partners are willing to invest resources in the relationship and show understanding at a deep level. They make the relationship feel special that their relationship is unique, which is, at least in Western societies, what people seek from their romantic relationships. In a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the authors report that their new study was in part prompted by a concept psychologists know as the intimacy-desire paradox. The core of the paradox lies in the contradiction between intimate and familiar relationships that many people strive for and the limitations of such bonds for facilitating desire. Some scholars have argued that long-term intimacy may actually inhibit rather than increase sexual desire. For example, the need for security may clash with a sense of novelty and uncertainty that can often fuel desire. But previous research has not provided conclusive evidence for whether increased sense of intimacy actually promotes or undermines sexual desire. And the new study suggests that, under certain circumstances, there may not be a paradox What determines whether intimacy prompts or inhibits desire is not its mere existence, but its meaning in the larger context of a relationship. Responsiveness is most likely to encourage desire. That's because it conveys the impression that the partner is worth pursuing, and thus engaging in sex with such a desirable partner is likely to promote an already valuable relationship. As part of the study, researchers conducted three experiments, one of which consisted of 100 couples who kept a diary for six weeks. Both partners reported on their own level of sexual desire each day, as well as their perceptions of their partner's responsiveness. They also reported their own levels of feeling special and perceptions of their partner's mate value. The results indicated that when men and women perceive their partners as responsive, they feel special and think of their partner as a valuable mate, which boosted sexual desirability. Partner responsiveness had a significantly stronger effect on women's perceptions of themselves and others suggesting that women experienced higher levels of desire for their responsive partner because they were more likely than men to feel special and value their partner as a result of the partner's responsiveness. Being nice and things like that are not necessarily based on who the partner is and what the partner really wants. When a mate is truly responsive, The relationship feels special and unique, and he or she is perceived as valued and desirable. Sexual desire thrives on increasing intimacy, and being responsive is one of the best ways to instill this elusive sensation over time. Well, there you have it. Some interesting findings there, and uh, perhaps... Any of you out there listening who need some help or advice reigniting your sex life, hopefully that you will find that helpful. All right, next up on psychiatry today, uh, when it comes to treating mental illness, therapy, as in psychotherapy, is also a, a very key component. Um, most people think of medication a lot, but... Psychotherapy is extremely important for recovery from mental illness and uh, prevention of relapse. And, of course, there are lots of different types of psychotherapy. Uh, most recently, cognitive behavioral therapy has gotten a lot of attention as being very helpful and very effective for different types of mental illness. Um, even as effective as medication in some cases. Uh, Although it may take longer to take effect, uh, the benefits often last longer than those of medication. But a new study I found that I want to tell you about finds that something called behavioral activation is as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy for depression at a lower cost. And behavioral activation is something... Uh haven't heard or read much about, and probably not many people here in the U.S. have heard of it. Uh, this study comes from the U.K., uh, so we're going to take a commercial break right here. When we come back from that, I'll tell you all about it, and have other mental health related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the
0: promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved.
2: We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track.
0: Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org.
2: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. All right, so here's a new type of psychotherapy, simple and inexpensive, apparently as effective as treating depression as the gold standard of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, according to a large-scale study. Called behavioral activation. It's relatively simple, meaning it can be delivered by more junior staff with less training, making it a cost-effective option. It is around 20% cheaper than cognitive behavioral therapy, meaning it could help ease current difficulties in accessing therapy and could make it more realistic to deliver for a wider range of countries worldwide. Behavioral activation encourages people to focus on meaningful activities driven by their own personal values as a way of overcoming depression. The multi-center study is one of the largest in the world to assess psychological treatments in depression through a randomized controlled trial by comparing different treatments between groups and was led by researchers at the University of Exeter. <clears throat> the study worked with clinical services to investigate the effectiveness and cost effectiveness of behavioral activation. And their finding that it can treat depression as effectively as cognitive behavioral therapy at lower cost is the most robust evidence yet. Um, of this effectiveness, and and how an effective workforce could be trained in doing it more easily and more cheaply, without comprom- compromising uh, the high level of quality of care, and this is seen as an exciting prospect for reducing waiting times and improving access to high-quality depression therapy worldwide and it offers hope for countries who are currently struggling with the impact of depression on the health of their peoples and economies. But I would say even in a wealthier economy if behavioral activation could be done uh, as effectively and uh, cheaper than cognitive behavioral therapy, then to me that would make psychotherapeutic treatment for depression much more widely available to more people than it is now. Uh, clinical depression is the second largest cause of disability globally, affecting around 350 million people worldwide. That would be the entire uh a little uh, more than the entire population of the U.S. spread all over the globe. The impact of economic output across the world, the negative impact, uh, the article should say, is is projected to be $5.36 trillion between 2011 and 2030. Although cognitive behavioral therapy is known to be effective, access is often restricted um, long waits or other difficult access issues to getting treatment uh, such as in our country lack of or limited insurance coverage in the UK uh, it's a question of waiting lists uh, for access to care with their national health service there 1 in 10 people have been waiting over a year to receive talking therapy uh, something that would just be outrageously scandalous here in the U.S., uh, where it's not such a uh, an issue or question of waiting uh, to get in to see a practitioner, uh, although it sometimes is as much as it is just pure uh, issue of affordability based on insurance coverage or the lack thereof. Uh, but the article says here in the U.S., only about a quarter of people with depression – have received any type of psychological therapy in the last 12 months. Part of the reason is the cost of delivery. Um, behavioral uh, activation is much cheaper to deliver, but until now there's been insufficient evidence to recommend it as a first line treatment in clinical guidelines. Uh, this trials the cost and outcome of behavioral activation versus cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. They came up with the acronym for that COBRA. It's one of the largest kinds of trials like this in the world and was designed to look at meeting this need. And the trial recruited participants from primary care and psychological services, 440 participants were divided into two groups, 219 were given cognitive behavioral therapy, and 221 received behavioral activation. Groups were followed up and assessed at 6, 12, and 18 months. Researchers found no difference between the groups at follow-up, providing the strongest evidence to date that behavioral activation is just as effective As cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, you might be curious to know a little bit about behavioral activation and how it works and how it differs from cognitive behavioral therapy, as I was, and I'm about to tell you. Behavioral activation is called an outside-in treatment that focuses on helping people with depression to change the way they act. Behavioral activation helps people make the link between their behavior and their mood. Therapists help people to seek out and experience more positive situations in their lives. The treatment also helps people reduce the amount of times that they avoid difficult situations and helps them find alternatives to unhelpful habitual behaviors. In contrast, cognitive behavioral therapy is an inside-out treatment where therapists focus on the way a person thinks. Therapists who use CBT help people to identify and challenge their thoughts and beliefs about themselves, the world, and their future. Cognitive behavioral therapy helps people to identify and modify negative thoughts And the beliefs that give rise to them. A year after the start of treatment, behavioral activation was found to be no worse than cognitive behavioral therapy, with around two-thirds of participants in both groups reporting at least a 50% reduction in depressive symptoms. Participants in both groups also reported similar numbers of depression-free days and anxiety diagnoses, and were equally likely to experience remission, that is, complete cessation of depression symptoms. But cost for the delivery of the behavioral activation therapy was found to be around 20% cheaper than cognitive behavioral therapy. In line with other clinical trials of a similar nature, dropout rates where around 20% and around a third of participants in both groups did not attend the minimum number of therapy sessions. But I'd like to review the differences and the contrast between the two types of therapies. Again, cognitive behavioral therapy is called an inside-out type treatment because you're helping someone change the way they think inwardly and then that translates into changes in behavior outwardly whereas behavioral activation is the opposite you get people to behave different outwardly and this helps lead to improved mood or inwardly a uh, better emotional state um, I guess act as if sort of thing but uh, it's very interesting to me that it works as well, and certainly um, you could argue whether the cost would be any less here in the States. You know, of course, we have a very different model than in the U.K. Uh, so um, regardless of how we see the cost issue or not, it certainly is intriguing to think that um, <clears throat> the benefits would be comparable. Next up on psychiatry today, the opioid epidemic. That is, um, narcotic painkiller abuse and addiction is getting a lot of attention lately. So I found this article that shows some clues about who may be particularly vulnerable to this problem. It turns out the inability to manage negative emotional and physical stress is associated with opioid misuse in adults with chronic pain. New research reported this in the Journal of Pain, published by the American Pain Society, researchers from Harvard investigated high distress intolerance and whether that would make patients with chronic pain more likely to misuse narcotic painkillers. Previous research showed that those with chronic pain misused their painkillers have higher levels of distress in general and heightened reactivity to that distress. Distress intolerance means the perceived or actual inability to cope with adverse bodily or emotional stress and it can be treated effectively with cognitive behavioral therapy. The authors hypothesized that those with higher distress intolerance would be more likely to misuse their painkillers and they also looked at whether higher stress intolerance was associated with higher sensitivity to pain. There were 51 participants from a pain management clinic They completed questionnaires and self-reports, probing for pain severity, pain thresholds, distress intolerance, and painkiller misuse. The self-reported distress intolerance was significantly associated with painkiller misuse. For every one unit increase in the distress intolerance index they used, the likelihood of painkiller misuse was 12% higher, and of the 51 subjects, 31 met criteria for painkiller misuse. So the study found that distress intolerance in adults with chronic pain with and without uh, opioid medication misuse may be a marker for such misuse in those with chronic pain. However, they didn't find that distress intolerance was associated with greater sensitivity to pain, but it showed higher pain-related anxiety. And again, it can be modified with cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and hope you have a wonderful stress-free week till we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening.
0: This is WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.